Fragments of Fright, Volume 2, is here. Over 20 scary stories are waiting for you. Go to Amazon and search for Fragments of Fright. Or go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash books. If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. (laughs) Sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. The Sleepover Kathleen I was a sophomore in high school when Delilah and Doris invited me to their new house for a sleepover. Delilah and Doris were twins, not identical. They were classmates and dear friends. They had moved into the house about a month ago. The house wasn't some big gothic-style mansion that had a looming presence. It was just a regular two-story cookie-cutter home in a suburban neighborhood. The twins both claimed that the house was haunted, specifically the basement, which is where we were all planning on spending the night. Why spend the night in a haunted basement when the warmth, coziness, and security of their bedroom was an option? For the fear factor. And the dumb factor. I mean, we were high schoolers. The twins said that whenever they went into the basement, there was a thickness to the air, like a warm humidity. This was very strange for a basement which was typically damp and cool. They claimed that both of them and their parents had heard strange noises coming from the basement. Usually a tapping sound. They would check around for the source of the tapping, but could never find it. They suspect the house to be haunted by the ghost of Jeremiah Cole. He was a boy around my age who committed suicide in the basement ten years prior. At first I thought the twins were pulling my leg, so I looked into it, and sure enough it checked out. A boy named Jeremiah Cole actually did kill himself down there. They were telling the truth. The fact that someone really died down in that basement gave me second thoughts about actually going through with the sleepover, but I knew the twins would tease me forever if I chickened out, so I decided to go through with it. We all brought our sleeping bags to the basement and sprawled them out on the icy floor. That was the weird thing. The floor was cold, but the air really was heavy, warm, and humid. They hadn't been kidding about that, either. It was a full basement. There were an array of boxes stacked neatly against one of the walls, but otherwise the entire basement was empty and vast. The walls were smoothed out concrete, and there was a closet door across from the stairs. It was a regular old wooden door that had never been stained. That's where the twins said the sounds come from. 
We had settled into our sleeping bags for the night and were telling ghost stories, so I was already on edge when I heard the tapping. It was just a few light taps, like someone tapping their pencil against a desk. It was coming from the closet. Did you hear that? The twins looked at me like I was crazy. Apparently they hadn't heard a thing. We all listened intently for several minutes, but didn't hear anything else. We spent another hour telling ghost stories and then turned out the lights and went to sleep. I was awakened in the middle of the night by a voice. Well, not really a voice, so much as it was a moan. It was deep, male, and accompanied by a heavy breath. The moaning continued as the tapping grew louder, and suddenly there were intense clanking sounds. It sounded like chains being dragged along the chilly concrete floor. Then I heard the voice. It was a young man's voice. It was full of anguish. Help me. I screamed and woke up the twins. They were both startled and began frantically asking me what was wrong. Do you hear that? Listen. I was afraid the noises would stop and they think I was nuts, but the sounds continued. Chains were rattling, overlapping tormented moans were calling out, the tapping had transformed into pounding, and on top of all of it was the suffering cry of a young man. Help me! Suddenly everything went silent. All three of us girls looked at each other with fear-filled eyes. I was about to say something when the closet door gently creaked open. I wasn't about to wait around and see what came out. I screamed and ran out of the house. The Sleepover Delilah and Doris I'm Delilah. I have a twin sister named Doris. Fortunately, we're not identical twins, or I'd be ugly as sin. I'm just kidding. Doris is much prettier than I am. Recently, we moved into a new house in a crowded suburban neighborhood, and our new house comes with a cryptic past. A boy named Jeremiah Cole killed himself in the basement. Legend has it that he found his girlfriend in the arms of his best friend and was so heartbroken that he went into the basement and slit his wrists. My sister Doris alleged that she heard tapping coming from the closet in the basement, but my sister and I are pranksters, so I'm not so sure if I believe her. But my dad said he heard a similar type noise come from down there as well from within the closet. He didn't think it was paranormal though. He thought there had to be a logical explanation for it, although as of yet, he hasn't been able to find one. My mom claims to have heard the subtle sound of a voice in the basement. It too came from behind the closet door. To this day, she's convinced it was me or Doris fooling around. We do joke around a lot, so I understand why she would think as much. But it wasn't us. There's also a strange heaviness in the air down in the basement. It's balmy, and I swear there's something depressing about it. Could it be a sign of Jeremiah Cole's ghostly presence? My dad thinks it's just due to lack of air ventilation 
and possibly over-insulating. Doris and I have a good friend named Kathleen. We love her, but she's very gullible and easy to fool. We thought it would be a lot of fun to invite her to a sleepover in our supposedly haunted basement and try to spook her. We recorded a bunch of spooky moaning, chains rattling, and tapping. Then we had Doris's boyfriend, Paul, record the words, Help me, a bunch of times. We mixed it all together, put it on a tape recorder, and placed it in the closet. The plan was to set the mood with a bunch of scary ghost stories, and when Kathleen was asleep, we'd start the recorder in the basement closet. During our ghost stories, Kathleen said she heard some tapping coming from the closet. Doris and I eyed each other. We thought maybe the jig was up. Kathleen probably knew we were up to something and was trying to turn the tables on us. But then she brushed it off and didn't bring it up again. Not long after that, we turned off the lights and faked going to sleep. Once we were sure that Kathleen had dozed off, Doris got up, went into the closet, and hit play on the tape recorder. The scary sound effects worked like a charm. Kathleen was totally freaking out. When Doris pulled open the closet door with fishing wire, Kathleen just about had a heart attack. She jumped up out of her sleeping bag and went running, not just out of the basement, but out of the house and down the street. It was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. Doris and I laughed hysterically for the longest time. When we finally simmered down, I commended her on how well she pulled off the opening of the door with fishing line. We had discussed doing something like that, but ultimately decided the tape recorder gag would be enough. Fortunately, Doris took it upon herself to follow through with the door opening prank on her own. It was the perfect exclamation point on the entire joke. I stopped laughing when I saw the confusion on Doris's face. I didn't open the door, I thought you did. I giggled. She was fooling with me. I expected her to laugh along with me, but she wasn't. She held her perplexed expression, so I made it clear. Doris, I did not open that door. Don't joke around with me. Tell me the truth. Did you open the door or not? Doris slowly shook her head. I know Doris better than she knows herself. She was not kidding. She was genuinely frightened and rushed up the stairs out of the basement. I was a little braver than Doris. If neither of us opened the door, I wanted to find out how it opened. Most likely the door hadn't been closed all the way and some kind of draft caused it to open on its own. I spent a long time trying to recreate the door opening, but couldn't do it. I was starting to get a little creeped out. Maybe our basement really was haunted. As I looked all around the inside of the closet searching for any clues as to how the door could have opened, I found something unusual wedged under an opening between the bottom of the closet wall and the basement floor. I pulled the strange object out and looked closely at it. It was a piece of wood that had been hand-carved into the shape of a heart with a dark brown muddled stain on one side. It was beautiful. 
I showed it to my parents and they had no idea what it was, but my father pointed out that he was certain the brown stain was dried blood. My father is a geneticist. He took the wooden heart to work with him and through DNA testing was able to conclude that the blood on the beautiful wooden heart belonged to Jeremiah Cole. What's really weird is that ever since I found that hand-carved wooden heart, the strange heaviness lingering in the air of the basement is gone. The Sleepover Jeremiah My name is Jeremiah Cole. I caught my girlfriend making out with my best friend on the gym bleachers. I was devastated. But rather than let myself get down about the whole thing, I tried to look on the bright side. And there was one. Her name was Melissa. Melissa was in my science class. I always thought she was cute. Sometimes I'd catch her looking at me. She'd smile embarrassingly and look away. Since my girlfriend was no longer my girlfriend, I decided to move on and ask Melissa out on a date. I am an excellent woodcarver. I specialize in small carvings that can be held in the hand. I do a lot of animal sculptures and figurines. My woodshop teacher actually paid me to make him a hand-carved chess set. I thought I'd break the ice with Melissa by giving her one of my handmade wooden sculptures as a gift. I thought a long while about what to carve for her and ultimately decided on a heart. I went to my basement, where I did all of my carvings, and sat down in my rickety stool and got to work. It was easy and I got moving quickly. I was just about done when my stupid, unsteady chair gave way and sent me toppling to the frigid basement floor. My carving knife was razor sharp and slit right through my wrist as I fell. I also bumped my head on the concrete floor and knocked myself out cold. Being that I was unconscious, I couldn't tend to my wrist wound and I bled to death. Everyone thought it was suicide, but I don't care what people think. I could have moved on to the next world where I'd be much happier, but I wasn't ready yet. Something was holding me back. I take great pride in my work, you see. That wooden heart was the last work of art I would ever do in this world. When I fell to the ground, the wooden heart went skipping across the floor, slid into the nearby closet, and under a small opening where the closet wall and basement floor met. No one would ever see it. That left me with a depressing, heavy feeling. My parents sold the house and the next occupants never went to the basement, but when they sold it to a couple and their twin daughters, they cleaned up the basement. They even did a power washing on the floor. A jolt of water sprayed under the opening between the wall and the floor and moved my wooden heart halfway out of the wall before it got stuck. But still, half of it was sticking out. If one of these people saw it, they'd likely pick it up and I'd feel free. I'd finally be able to move on. I did my best to make noises in the closet to get them to come down and look around. I have a difficult time manifesting sound. I'd scream out, but nobody would ever hear me, although I think the mother may have heard me once. I had my most success with a tapping noise. I was able to make it loud enough to where the father looked around in that closet multiple times, but he never found my wooden heart. 
When the twins had a friend over and they all slept in the basement, I tried my damnedest to make noises, but I wasn't having any luck. I managed a few taps, and the friend heard it, but then dismissed it. When Doris turned on their tape recorder to scare their friend, I figured I missed out on my chance. I mean, no noise I could make at that point would be loud enough to be heard over that damn recording. I was quite frustrated and kicked the door. To my surprise, it caused the door to creak open. Lucky me. That led to the girl Delilah finding my wooden heart, the last piece of art I ever created. I was finally at peace and moved on. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. They live underground. I was a military engineer that was contracted to construct classified top-secret sections onto multiple military bases. This is actually quite common. As spy satellite photo technology has advanced, the desire to move the majority of military bases underground has increased. There are countless bases that have underground sections. At this point, I would venture to say that most military bases in the U.S. have at least one underground level. Most have many more. The deepest level I personally have ever helped construct was seven levels under the ground. But I know for a fact that there are some military bases that go well beyond that. I was brought in to survey one such base. The base and state it is located in will remain nameless, but I can say that it is located in the southwestern section of the country. I was quite surprised to find that the base was more than 20 stories underground and miles long. It was a virtual underground government city. I was brought in to see how possible it would be to add more levels to their underground world. Why would they want to go deeper? I don't know. I learned a long time ago not to ask questions. I was hired to give a report as to the possibilities of adding three more levels. Apparently the previous contractor gave them an answer they were not satisfied with, so they brought me in for a second opinion. It was a multi-month task and I had my men drilling a multitude of 10-foot wide steel caisson shafts to check stability of the earth below. I was ready to wrap up for the day when I got an urgent request from one of my foremen. He said he had drilled into an air pocket which he was positive was some kind of a man-made tunnel. I was intrigued to say the least. His conclusion was confirmed when I found myself looking down the shaft into a hole that appeared to be a section of open tunnel. I had the men lower a camera down into the tunnel and we were shocked at what we saw. 
It was massive, just a gigantic mammoth cave. But unlike a cave, there was nothing natural about the flooring or the walls within this enormous tunnel. The floor appeared to be oddly shiny, and the walls looked like they were covered with some kind of honeycomb. I tied a rope around my waist and had them lower me into the tunnel. It was against all protocols, but I didn't care. I wanted to see more. Once I was in the tunnel, I untied the rope from my body and yelled up for my men to stand by while I investigated. The length of the tunnel was mind-boggling. I couldn't see the end in either direction, and it wasn't for lack of lighting. Although there were no overhanging lights of any kind, the tunnel was lit up bright. It had something to do with the strange walls. The walls were amber in color and exuded a comforting illumination. And while they looked very much like honeycombs, they were cold and solid like steel. I bent down and ran my hand over the floor. It felt like glass, like black glass, but it was sturdy. I stomped my boot on it as hard as I could and it felt like solid rock. I started walking down the tunnel. It was eerily silent. No ambient sound at all. I heard nothing but the sound of my body moving. The tunnel was straight on and seemed never-ending. I must have walked for 20 minutes when I noticed a difference in the walls. They gradually began to smooth out, giving the appearance of sheet metal. I touched the metal and it wasn't solid. It was jelly-like and cold. My hand disappeared into the wall as if I had plunged it into a vat of jello, but I was able to extract it with no issues, and there was no moisture on my hand as I would have expected with a gelatinous substance. Then I heard a low hum and felt an ever so slight vibration under my feet. I nearly lost my balance when the floor started moving, slow at first, and then all at once I was propelled forward at a lightning pace. The walls around me turned into a purple glow, and when I looked down there was no longer a floor under my feet. What I saw instead was a black void. I felt as though I were flying. All at once I stopped and found myself at the end of the tunnel, overlooking a bustling city of glass. Large, cone-like, black glass buildings shimmered under some kind of inner-earth sun. There were a myriad of vehicles moving about, some flying, some softly floating. They all appeared to be made from a substance similar to the black glass floor I was on earlier. It was breathtakingly beautiful, and I was filled with a sense of peace, until I heard a deafening shriek coming from behind me. I turned around and found myself face to face with a creature. It was slightly taller than me with a slender frame and pale green skin. It had a triangular head and bulbous dark green eyes. Its arms were long and ended at a hand with multiple fingers, thumbs, and claws. It reminded me of a giant praying mantis crossed with a human and dressed in a suit made of aluminum foil. It stood across from me studying me, and while it didn't speak, it conveyed to me mentally what it wanted me to do. Get out. 
I did so. I began running back toward the area from which I came. Once again I found myself being propelled forward and within seconds I was back at the entrance of the tunnel. My crew lowered a rope down to me. Before I tied the rope to my waist so that they could hoist me back up, I was overwhelmed by a message being driven into my mind. Leave us alone or pay the consequences. I had my crew cover the hole to the tunnel and told them they had to swear never to tell a soul about this. Not that anyone would ever believe them anyhow. I told the military officer I was supposed to report to that the ground was not stable and that I recommended that they do not attempt to go any further down. He stared at me emotionlessly for a moment and then smirked. You saw them, didn't you? I didn't answer. I didn't have to. He knew. That was the scariest thing of all. They already knew of these underground dwellers. They were already closer to that strange, wonderful inner world than they ever should be. I left that day and retired my position. I have no idea what happened after that. But based on the message that was conveyed to me by the humanoid being I encountered, if the government ever encroaches on the creature's territory, it will be the end of the world as we know it. If you like what you're hearing, please consider contributing. Any amount helps. Recurring monthly contributions are best of all. Just go to maniacontheloose.com slash support. That's maniacontheloose.com slash support. My biggest fan. My name is Georgia Sumner. I'm an actress. Not to be confused with the word celebrity. I'm simply an actress. I act to make money so that I can live. I mostly do commercials and have had bit parts in several big budget movies. But I got a huge break about a year ago when I was cast in a superhero movie. I played a newspaper reporter and was in several significant scenes. Since then, I've had a lot more work in movies. Still smaller parts, but let me tell you something about the acting world. Those smaller parts still pay very well. But don't get me wrong, I'm not rich. Far from it. Most people with 40 hour a week jobs make more money than I do. I'm not complaining, just stating a fact and making sure it's clear that I'm not rich and famous and that I'm leagues away from celebrity status. That being said, I'm still in the public eye and somehow I have fans. Several of them. I actually get fan mail and autograph requests. It's pretty neat. At least it was. There's one fan in particular that has made me wish that I didn't have any fans at all. He initially reached out to me on social media 
I'm not a social media hound, not even close. If I weren't an actress, I wouldn't be on social media at all, but part of my job is promoting my work, so I have no choice. My fan initially sent me a simple message. It read, Hi Georgia, I love your work. I'm your biggest fan. Innocent enough, right? I replied back by saying, Thanks so much. I forgot all about it because I had gotten a lot of messages like that. A week later, he messaged me again. Hi, this is Brad, your biggest fan. Thanks for replying to my message. It means a lot. If you're ever in Bowling Green, Kentucky, you have a place to stay. I wrote back, Thanks, Brad. His reply was, You are welcome. And you are pretty. I didn't reply back. It was a week later when I received a text message on my phone from a number I didn't recognize. It read, Guess Who? I had no idea who it was, so I typed back. The correspondence went as follows. I have no idea. It's your biggest fan, remember me? My name is Brad. How did you get my number, Brad? It's easy to find out people's phone numbers in this day and age. I don't mean to be rude, Brad, but I use this phone for business only. If you'd like to message me, please use social media. He didn't respond back, and a week went by without hearing any more from him. I was hoping that was the end of it, but then I received another text message from him. It's me again. Hey, I'm in Woodland Hills. Any chance you can put me up for the night? This was getting creepy. It was easy for a fan to guess that I lived in Los Angeles, California because that's where a lot of acting work is. But Woodland Hills is a specific neighborhood in the San Fernando Valley. And that just so happened to be where my apartment was. He knew where I lived. I probably shouldn't have replied back, but I did. I was trying to be nice and politely discourage him. Brad, I'm out of town for work. I wouldn't be able to put you up anyhow. I just have a small one-bedroom apartment. I lied. I wasn't out of town for work. I was hoping that telling him that I was would motivate him to go back to his home state. He replied back, I know you're not out of town. I saw you this morning at Kirchhoff's coffee shop. This sent chills down my spine. I was at Kirchhoff's coffee shop that morning. He was stalking me. He continued, As far as the one bedroom goes, not a problem. I hope your bed is small. I like to cuddle. I was freaking out. I called the police and got nowhere since there was never a threat made. They suggested I block his number, so I did. Later that night, I got a text from a different number. It was Brad again. You blocked my number? You bitch. You didn't really think I'd go away that easily, did you? Take a look outside your window. I was reluctant to do as he said, but I wanted to see what kind of game he was playing. I moved to the front of my apartment and slowly pulled the curtain back. On the corner of the street, I saw a broad-shouldered man in a black jacket and black knitted cap. He was staring at me, and then held up his hand and waved. 
I was so scared I lost my breath. I called the police. They said there was not much they could do since he was on a public street and hadn't threatened me. They told me they'd have a car do a few extra rounds by my apartment building that night. I was quite frazzled. A few hours later I looked out the window again and didn't see Brad. I did see a police car slowly drive down the road, so that made me feel better. It took me forever to get to sleep that night, but when I did, I slept soundly. It had been a chilly night and I had covered myself up with a heavy blanket. When I woke up the next morning, the blanket was on the floor. I looked down at my uncovered body and noticed my nightgown had been hiked up to my chest, revealing my cotton panties. I looked up at the mirror on the wall across from my bed. There was a message scrawled across it with lipstick that read, Nice panties. I love you. Your biggest fan. I screamed. Since then, I moved into an apartment with two other people, so I'm rarely home alone. I usually have someone drive me to work and back. Always having someone near me makes me feel safer, but I'm never fully at ease. Even though I haven't heard from Brad since that night, I fear the day when I look at my phone and see another message from my biggest fan. Forgotten Time I live in Louisville, Kentucky and had to go to Nashville, Tennessee on business. It's about a two and a half hour drive from Louisville to Nashville. When I take a little road trip like that, I like to leave a day early, drive the back roads, and see some sights. There's a lot to see between Louisville and Nashville. On this particular trip, I made a stop in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and visited Mammoth Cave. It happens to be the longest cave system known in the entire world. They have a bunch of different cave tours to choose from. I made a point to choose one that didn't require much in the way of climbing and crawling. At 62 years old, my knees aren't what they once were. I opted for a tour called the Great Onyx Lantern Tour. It was breathtakingly beautiful. There was a wealth of geological formations that sparkled by the lantern's light. From there, I made a quick stop in Russellville, Kentucky to see a bank the James Gang robbed back in 1868. The bank is still standing. As a matter of fact, it has since been turned into a residence. After that, I plan to stop at a gigantic antique store in Springfield, Tennessee, called the Antique Barn. Springfield, Tennessee is approximately 40 minutes from Russellville, Kentucky. I left Russellville at 2 o'clock p.m. Imagine my surprise when I arrived at the Antique Barn, only to find it closed. I was extremely disappointed. I had called them earlier that day to confirm their hours. 
They told me they'd be open until 5 p.m. Why had they closed so early? I looked at my watch and was shocked to see the time was 5.45. I immediately started tapping my watch to get it working again. I mean, it had to be broken, right? I pulled my cell phone from my pocket to see what the actual time was. 5.45 p.m. I knew this couldn't be correct. I left Russellville at 2 o'clock. It didn't take me three and a half hours to get to Springfield. This was nuts. I drove down the road to a nearby bank that had the time flashing on their sign outside. The clock confirmed that my watch and cell phone were correct. I was dumbfounded. I felt like I was in a bit of a daze. Where had the time gone? Suddenly, I was overtaken by fatigue, accompanied by a pounding headache. I got myself a room at a local inn and collapsed onto the bed, immediately falling into a deep sleep. I had nightmares that night. I dreamt of being on the road between Russellville and Springfield. I took a longer route than most people might, through some peaceful, lonely back roads. The sun was growing bright in the sky, and then brighter. It was zooming toward me at blinding speed, and then all at once it stopped and was hovering over my car. I don't know why I had stopped my car, but I did. And everything was silent. There were no birds chirping, no insects bustling, nothing but stillness. Then I felt as though I were floating. I looked down and could see my car beneath me. It was growing smaller as I floated higher. Within seconds, everything changed from the magnificent bright to a deafening black. I could feel myself being immersed in some kind of a thick liquid. I felt as though I were swimming in the deepest depths of the ocean. The silence of the blackness was shattered by a constant hissing sound. It was a cross between a snake and a dentist's drill. My back suddenly felt cold. I felt as though I had been laid upon a block of ice, and above me I was blinded by overhead lights. Occasionally a silhouette of a head would shield the lights. A large, bulbous head. It was not of this earth. I could feel cold, metallic-like objects probing at my body. While this did not hurt, it was extremely intrusive, and I had an overwhelming sense of being violated. I found myself floating upward toward the light, and then my body spun around, and I was facing downward. I could feel myself being lowered softly. It was now the front of my body that was lying on the icy table, and I could feel an array of hands moving up and down my back. The hands felt feminine. They were warm and slender. I felt like I could have tricked myself into believing it was a massage if I wanted to, but I knew that's not what they were doing. They were exploring my body with curiosity. I was terrified when the hands left my body and were replaced by some type of sharp, thin object. I felt a large needle being dragged over my back. The needle was slowly moved up my neck and came to a rest in an area behind my left ear. It sat there, nearly piercing my flesh for a few seconds before I experienced a jolt of pain. It felt like the needle was being shoved through my entire skull. I woke up in a cold sweat and panting. I was exhausted. 
I didn't feel like I had rested at all, and although I call it a nightmare, it felt more like an encounter. Like it really happened. I stood in front of the mirror in the bathroom and looked my body over. There was no evidence of trauma. I turned around and looked at my back the best I could. I halfway expected to see my back covered in scratch marks. But nothing. I could easily brush those memories off as a nightmare, but I could not account for those lost hours of time. It was bizarre. The next day, when my business meeting had concluded, one of my associates approached me and pointed at the back of my head. What happened? I shrugged. What do you mean? She moved her finger closer to the back of my head. Right there. She positioned me in front of some reflective glass, took a compact mirror out of her purse, and held it behind my head so that I could see the large, red, puncture wound behind my left ear. Here's a super fun way to support the show. Go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash store and buy some Maniac on the Loose merchandise. Let the world know you're a listener. T-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, hats, mugs, there's a bunch of items to choose from. And you have a multitude of design choices, including all of my book covers. Go take a look. It's super cool. Go on. Do it. Right now. Go. ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash store. The TV show Husband I'm a fan of reality shows, so is my wife Candy. We're also both big horror fans. So when we heard there was going to be a new television reality show set within a huge old haunted house, we were excited. The TV show was called Locked in a Haunted Mansion. The premise was 10 people were locked in an authentic old mansion. The mansion was run down and had no electricity or plumbing. It was also rumored to be extremely haunted. The ten participants were supposed to find a way to live there for ten weeks. After each week, they'd vote out one person. When they were down to the final two contestants, the previously voted out participants would vote for who should win. It sounded like a blast to me and Candy. We were counting the days until the premiere of the new show. Locked in a Haunted Mansion was slotted at 9pm on Thursday nights, and this was perfect for us. It gave us plenty of time to get home from work, have dinner, unwind, and then settle in for the show. When the clock chimed at 9pm, we got a huge bowl of popcorn, dimmed the lights, and got cozy on the couch. The show started with an elaborate opening. It was a point-of-view shot zooming through the entire creepy mansion while dusty organ music played. The atmosphere was set. Then the host of the show appeared. He was dressed in a dark robe and his face was powdered white. He was pretty spooky and spoke in a deep, hoarse voice. The ten contestants, who were a mix of men and women with ages ranging from 20 to 60, all listened to the host intently as he told them the rules. 
He then exited the scary mansion, and we could hear the clanking of the door being bolted and locked. They were locked in, and the show had officially begun. I was having so much fun with this show. It was everything I was hoping for, and more. While watching the show, every once in a while I noticed the screen seemed to flash white for a millisecond. At least I thought it did. I'm in my 50s and my eyes aren't quite what they were. Maybe I was just seeing things. As the show progressed, I was getting hungrier. But it seemed like every single time I reached for a handful of popcorn, my wife Candy's dirty hand was already there wriggling about within the bowl. It was as though she was deliberately trying to spread her germs to every single individual piece of popcorn. And her popcorn chewing became increasingly louder. She sounded like a big fat cow chewing on its cud. She was disgusting me. I mean, here I was starving, and she was hogging the entire bowl of popcorn. My stomach was aching. I needed to feed my hunger. I turned my head and opened my mouth to speak. I was about to tell my grotesque wife to keep her filthy hands out of my popcorn and to stop chomping her food like a hog, but when I turned my head, I found that she was staring at me. Her eyes were dark and sadistic. She held a scowl on her face. I swear she was growling like a rabid dog. It was at this moment that I realized my wife felt the same way about me as I did about her. She hated me. She wanted me gone. She wanted to kill me. I could read her expression. She was about to strike. Her intention was savage. She needed me dead. I couldn't let her have the advantage by making the first move. So I attacked first. The TV Show Wife my husband Chuck and I had been looking forward to the new reality TV show called Locked in the Haunted Mansion. It was a combination of our favorite genres. We had literally been counting the days until it premiered. When the day arrived, I took half a day off work to get home early and prepare for the big night. I made Chuck's favorite dinner, pot roast and potatoes. I also made a batch of homemade peanut butter cookies, which were Chuck's favorite. I shaped them as little haunted houses. I didn't tell Chuck about any of this, I wanted to surprise him. When he arrived home from work, I greeted him at the door with a big hug. He immediately started carrying on about how excited he was about the premiere of the show. He just went on and on. Now, don't get me wrong, I was excited too and was doing my fair share of talking about the show, but it was like he was obsessed. He sat down and wolfed down his dinner, never even acknowledging the fact that it was pot roast and potatoes. He was totally oblivious as he rattled on about the show. He could have been eating a TV dinner for all he knew. And he didn't even notice the haunted house cookies I had displayed on the counter. He didn't even glance at them while he was making popcorn. <laughs> this was all fine though. His focus was elsewhere because we were so eager to see the show. I understood. Once the show was over and he simmered down, I'd remind him about the great dinner he didn't acknowledge, and he'd recognize his absent-mindedness and would apologize and give me a big kiss. As for the haunted house cookies he didn't notice, well, those would make for a wonderful post-show surprise, so all was going to be just fine and dandy. 
The show was fantastic. It was leaps and bounds better than anything I had hoped for, and believe me, my expectations were high. The strange thing was that I occasionally noticed tiny micro-flashes across the TV screen. They were so fast and infrequent that I figured maybe my mind was playing tricks on me. I turned my head to look at Chuck. I was curious if he saw the flashes too, but he was unaware of anything other than the show. He was sitting there bouncing up and down like a child, laughing, gasping, and applauding at various moments during the show. I think he loves this show more than he loves me. This son of a bitch didn't even recognize that I slaved over a hot stove for him all day, and those damn cookies he loves so much are no picnic to make. A simple damn thank you would have been appreciated, but no, this fat bastard didn't even see them. He was too obsessed with his new love, the show. I swear if he could have had sex with this goddamn show, he would have. My blood was boiling when Chuck turned his head to look at me. I could see in his evil eyes that he recognized my fury. This man didn't love me. This man needed to die, and I was going to be the one to kill him. The TV Show The Neighbor I'm sick and tired of hearing about the upcoming Locked in the Mansion TV show. I swear that TV studio must have spent a billion dollars on advertising. Every billboard I passed on my way to and from work had an ad for that stupid show. Every other commercial on TV was for it too, I couldn't get away from it. I work in a tool and die factory. Most of my co-workers are real men. They like football, boxing, and monster trucks. They don't go for those pansy reality TV shows. But even my factory was a buzz about the upcoming show. The roughest and toughest characters I worked with were giddy with anticipation for this stupid-ass show. In all honesty, I was getting a little curious about it too, but I was too strong to give in to all the cheesy ads. While the rest of the country was getting ready to watch the world premiere of Locked in the Haunted Mansion, I kicked back in my lazy boy recliner ready to watch a classic triple header of Happy Days, Barney Miller, and Leave it to Beaver. Hey, I love boxing, football, and monster trucks with the best of them, but I'm a sucker for old TV shows. It was about 20 minutes later when I heard a piercing scream coming from my neighbor's Chuck and Candy's house. It sounded more like a war cry than a cry of distress. This was followed up by shouting, yelling, and various crashing sounds. I swear, it sounded like they were throwing pots and pans at the wall. Chuck and Candy are real nice folks, so I hurried out of my house to check on them. When I exited my house, I couldn't believe my eyes. My neighborhood looked and sounded like a war zone. I could hear the rat-a-tat-tat of gunfire. My neighbor across the street was on his front lawn, slitting her husband's throat. On the front porch of the house next to theirs, I could see a man strangling a woman. Cars were zooming up and down the road, crashing into each other. People were fist-fighting in the streets or shooting each other or stabbing each other. It was absolute mayhem. I rushed to Chuck and Candy's house and banged on the door. Hey Chuck, Candy, are you guys okay? There was no answer and the ruckus inside had stopped. I feared the worst and busted down the door. And my fears were confirmed. The interior of their house was in a shambles. It appeared as though they had wrestled throughout every room. 
Furniture was toppled over, pictures were smashed to the floor, and the glimmer of the television cast an eerie glow over everything. I found Candy dead in the living room. Her face was stuffed in a big bowl of popcorn. She had been suffocated, but not before doing a number on Chuck with a pot roast pan. He succumbed to his injuries in the kitchen. He was on his back, his face a bloody pulp. What the hell was going on? I turned and looked at the television. The Locked in the Haunted Mansion show was on. It looked as stupid as I expected it would. I noticed that every few seconds the screen would flash bright. That couldn't be part of the show. It was annoying. I assumed their TV set had gotten damaged in the scuffle. But damn, that flashing was giving me a headache and pissing me off. Suddenly, I found myself enraged and I wanted to take out my anger on the world. I grabbed a butcher knife from the kitchen and ran outside to do some killing. The TV Show The Scientist Subliminal messaging has come a long way since its inception in the 1950s. Subliminal advertising is not a phrase uncommon to most people. It's the practice of using signals, messages, words, and or images that the consumer does not consciously detect. While watching television or a movie, hundreds of subliminal messages can occur, but the viewer will never be conscious of it. However, their subconscious mind will be. In the last century, subliminal messaging was isolated to advertising only, simply to get people to purchase certain products. There were only a handful of us scientists who had perfected the art of subliminal messaging. We were in demand, and financially, we were rolling in dough. Knowing that the work was no more significant than influencing people to choose one brand of soap over the other seemed like a waste, so I experimented and branched out. In the early part of this century, due to my expertise, subliminal messaging began to take a turn. It was at this time that politicians started poking their noses and wallets into the industry. I explained that if one could be persuaded to purchase specific products, perhaps they could be influenced to vote for certain political parties and have disdain for rival parties. This form of subliminal messaging has been wildly successful. Thirty years ago, most people had no idea what anyone else's political preference was, nor did they care. Compare this to the mentality of most people in this day and age, and its polar opposite. This effect is a direct result of subliminal messaging. Now the stakes have been raised again. If it is possible to persuade people to buy specific products and to worship political parties, could they be motivated to... kill? The answer is yes. My name is Dr. Simon Joffrey. I have recently perfected this particular art of subliminal messaging. As an experiment to confirm my subliminal messaging's effectiveness, I inserted my signals into a reality television show called Locked in a Haunted Mansion. 
It was a glorious success. I was already rich beyond my wildest dreams. Now, I have the power to truly rule the world. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Don't go in the basement. My wife and I recently divorced. It was rather abrupt. I came home from work early one day and found her in bed with my best friend. Due to her infidelity, I got everything I wanted in the divorce, including the house, which I really didn't want. I mean, I couldn't sleep in that bedroom again after what I witnessed. Nah, that place had way too many memories. So I sold it. I took the money I made from the sale and purchased my dream home, which was just a simple cabin in a heavily wooded, quiet area. It would be the perfect place to start a new life. The problem was, it was going to take about six months to clear some of the land, build the cabin, get a driveway put in, and all that. So, in the meantime, I had to rent a place to live. I wasn't particular about what my temporary home would be, I just didn't want it to be too expensive. One day while driving through a peaceful neighborhood on my way to work, I noticed a for rent sign in the yard of an old house. It was a corner lot with an average size yard. It needed a good mowing, but otherwise it looked fine. The house itself was a 1940s two-story brick colonial. The bricks were weathered and gray, but sturdy. There were chimneys on both sides of the house, and the two gabled dormer windows on the roof gave the appearance of eyes looking out over the neighborhood. I didn't need a house that big, but I figured I'd call the number and inquire as to the price. When I called and the owner of the house told me the price, I thought I misunderstood him. The monthly price was unusually low. There had to be a catch, so I asked if he could show it to me. The tour through the house went fine. The interior was a little worn and extremely dated. It was still displaying a loud 1970s theme. Lots of orange and earth tones, shag carpet, wood paneling, but it was nothing I couldn't live with. I asked why the price was so low. The owner claimed the reason was because it was only available for six months. At that point, he was planning on giving the entire interior a makeover, and then he was going to put it up for sale. He said most folks who had any interest declined due to the short availability, so he lowered the price considerably in hopes to get a little extra money before the renovations began. Of course, for me, that six-month time frame was perfect. My dream home would be complete by then, and I'd be ready to move out, so I was quick to sign the six-month lease. 
He said since he was completely renovating the interior that I was free to do any decorating I wanted. Paint, wallpaper, he even said if I wanted to tear down some walls to go for it, it would be one less thing he'd have to rip down later. I kept most of my belongings in storage and just moved in essential items. And even though he gave me free reign to do whatever I wanted to the place, I had no plans to do anything like that. For my needs, it was fine just the way it was. I wasn't at the old house much the first couple of weeks. I was spending a lot of time checking the initial construction of my new home and was working late a lot. I was mostly using the rented house for sleep. Once I was confident the construction on my cabin was going well and my workload at my job lightened up, I was able to hang out in the old brick house much more. And things got creepy. It was the kitchen where the eeriness occurred. Every once in a while, I'd be in the kitchen and I'd hear the distinct sound of chains rattling. There was no doubt as to what it was. The big question was, where the hell was it coming from? The chain sounds didn't happen constantly. It was only on occasion. Thus, it was hard to isolate the sound. It was a couple months before I finally figured out where it was coming from. It was coming from under the floor. This was crazy because the house didn't have a basement. How could chain rattling sounds be emanating from under the floor? I called the owner of the house and told him about it. He said that several tenants he had over the years claimed the house was haunted. Many had mentioned the sounds of chains clanking and others said the chain noises were accompanied by moans. I was intrigued to say the least. I had a good friend who worked in the county records department. He was also a local historian. I asked him if he could dig up anything about the history of the house and boy did he come through for me. The original owner of the house was named Hubert Cromwell. He was a widower and had twin daughters. He was a research scientist. It was speculated that he was an expert in biochemical warfare. When his twin daughters had not shown up for school for a period of two weeks, an administrator from the school stopped at the house to find out what was wrong. When they arrived, they found the front door ajar. They stepped into the house and found Hubert Cromwell with a gun in his hand and a bullet in his brain. Why he committed suicide, nobody knows, and they never did find his twin daughters. My friend was able to uncover the original blueprints of the house, and the amazing thing was that they showed a basement within the house. And according to the blueprints, the basement door was in the kitchen. But there was no door in the kitchen. I started knocking on the walls all throughout the kitchen area. To my surprise, one section of the wall sounded like it had a bit of a hollow spot behind it. My curiosity was more than piqued. I wanted to get a sledgehammer and pound through the wall. I wanted to see if there was a door behind it. I ran my crazy idea by the owner. He was more than okay with me proceeding with Operation Sledgehammer. For reselling purposes, he was mighty excited about the prospect of a basement. After several hard pounds of the sledgehammer, the plaster came tumbling down and a large wooden door stood before me. But that wasn't the only thing. Written with red paint across the door were the words, Don't go in the basement. 
This freaked me out, but my curiosity overruled my fear, and I found myself turning the doorknob. I was surprised at how easily the door opened. I was expecting to have to pry the thing open with a crowbar, but that wasn't the case. I swung the door open and looked down the cobweb-ridden basement stairs before me. I grabbed a flashlight and pushed my way down the darkened stairwell. Each step creaked loudly underneath my weight, but they felt solid. The blackness of the basement swallowed up my flashlight's beam. I couldn't even make out the floor of the basement until I reached the final step. It was then that I could tell that the basement floor was dirt. I took two steps onto the soft dirt floor and stopped abruptly when I saw a large manila folder sitting out of place on the dirt. I bent down and picked it up. Inside the manila folder were pages upon pages of hand-scribbled notes. What was this? I didn't have a chance to read a word before the loud clang of a chain startled me out of my wits. I shined my light forward, but it was too dark to see the source of the sound, so I cautiously took a few steps forward on the spongy ground. Another quick clatter of a chain to my left literally made me jump. I stood for the longest time pointing my beam of light in the direction from which the noise came and listened. Occasionally I could hear the soft, subtle sounds of chains stirring, but that wasn't all I heard. I also heard breathing. It was soft breath, and there was a flutter to it like congestion. I took another step forward into the basement, and then another. It was then that I was met by a high-pitched shriek. I stumbled backwards away from the scream and then saw the beast launch itself at me. It was small in stature, feminine, and rotten. It smelled of death. I fell onto the floor and lay helpless as the creature jumped toward me. I gritted my teeth and braced for impact when the monster was suddenly jerked back by the restraining bolt around its neck which was attached to a long, thick chain. Before I could let out a sigh of relief, I heard the clanking of another chain from my right side, and another identical beast was hurling itself toward me. I was able to stand and run before the monster could reach me, and then I witnessed the creature fall backwards due to its momentum being halted by its chain. I scurried back a few feet until I was at a safe distance. Then I simply observed. It was the twin girls. They were both chained to the walls. Their eyes were burning red. Their decaying skin was a sickening gray color. They glared at me with rage in their eyes and gnashed their teeth as they reached out toward me, longing to rip me apart. I grabbed the manila folder and ran upstairs. I sipped from a bottle of bourbon to help calm my nerves as I read the contents of the folder. Dr. Hubert Cromwell had taken notes about his experiments. He had been attempting to produce a chemical that would bring deceased soldiers back to life. The reanimated corpses would be aggressive and thirsty for blood. The perfect fighting machines. He had a major breakthrough and was about to present his formula to the agency, 
when disaster struck. His twin daughters stumbled across his formula and spilled some on themselves. The chemical was absorbed by their flesh, killing them instantly. And as the formula was designed to do, it brought them back to life as maniacal, bloodthirsty zombies. The humane thing would have been to put them down, but Dr. Cromwell didn't have the strength to do so. Instead, he chained them up in the basement and plastered up the basement door, hoping no one would ever find them. I did what Hubert Cromwell didn't have the heart to do. I brought a revolver to the basement and put the twin girls out of their misery. We hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com Sign up for our newsletter and I'll give you some free stuff. We'll see you soon. Very soon. From the mind of a maniac. Eight horror stories that are interconnected either significantly or slightly and are all bundled into one gigantic collection. That's right, you get eight books for the price of one. Maniac on the Loose, The Nine Lives of Ski Mask, The Craving, The Caretakers, It Lives in the Attic, Goat Sucker, Spirit Stalkers, Hell is Full. All eight books for the price of one. Go to Amazon and search for From the Mind of a Maniac or go to maniacontheloose.com slash books.